Cosmos Science, news, magazine, podcasts, video and features. Welcome to Cosmos Country, where our reporters talk about dealing with climate change in rural and regional Australia. We don't need to be scared of fire. We need to think about fire in complex, nuanced ways. When smoke was billowing up from the houses across the road. Burn-offs are actually a complex process. It's not simply a matter of dropping a match in a spinifex bush and running up wind. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cosmos Country. Parts of the north and red centre of Australia have already been extensively burned by fires this year. Most recently, fires tore through 10,000 square kilometres of land near Tennant Creek in early September. The month prior, unseasonal blazes burned around 25,000 hectares of heritage-nominated West McDonnell Ranges National Park, threatening the nearby town of Alice Springs. In the past, such fires were sometimes hundreds of kilometres from any infrastructure and could perhaps be safely ignored. But more and more fires threaten regional centres or destroy valuable desert ecologies. And the fires are now going global, with Canada, Greece, Spain, Hawaii and others all badly affected this year. So what can we do and how can science help? Cosmos journalist Glenn Morrison has been reporting on the fires from Alice Springs throughout the year. Thanks, Jamie. Well, the, the firefighters just to the north of Alice Springs are finally getting over it seems, a very big fire, around five times the size of the ACT one outlet reported. At times, it was a, it was a threat to the mining town of Tennant Creek. More than 3,000 people lived there, a third of them Aboriginal people. Thankfully, hundreds of volunteers were on hand and uh, to clear the fire breaks, douse flames. Some of them brought heavy earth-moving machinery as well as local know-how. But the Barclay region, being that central region of the Northern Territory where Tennant Creek is the centre of, is not the only to threaten the north and the centre in the re- in recent months or, in fact, in recent years, and it doesn't look like it's going to be the last. In fact, scientists predict 80% of the Northern Territory is likely to burn before March next year, which isn't all that uh, good a news. We have Dr Rowan Fisher from Charles Darwin University's Northern Institute. Welcome, Dr Fisher. Can you tell us why all these fires? Primarily because Australia is a highly fire-prone continent. There has always been fires and there always will be fires. And particularly as you go further north uh, and you enter some of the more monsoonally influenced part of the country, you get into some of the most fire-prone landscapes in the world. So I think it's important to realise that fire is a natural part of the ecology and particularly in the northern savannas, we will always get an annual fire season. So has there been any uptick at at all, do you think, or are we seeing a, a normal frequency of fire? So I think we need to divide it into two zones. So once once again, if you're looking at the far north, the tropical savannas, the most fire-prone landscapes uh, in the world, what we've actually seen is a reduction in fire frequency over an area of about 640,000 square kilometres. So what's that? Almost two and a half times the size of Victoria. There is now less fire now than there was, say, 15, 20 years ago. And that is because um, people on the ground have reintroduced fire back into the landscape uh, as was used for you know the previous 50 or 60,000 years so led primarily but not exclusively by indigenous land management groups and proactively putting fire back into the fire prone landscapes 
we've been able to significantly reduce the frequency of fire. So I think this is really important because I mean, a lot of the narratives at the moment, you know, relating to, you know, climate change and invasive grasses, it's ma making things look all very doom and gloom. And the truth is, particularly in Northern Australia, we're achieving some of the most significant reductions in wildfire. And I would argue some of the best fire management practice in the world at the moment. And it's, it's been through bloody hard work, people getting on the ground, hot conditions, putting it in those breaks. So Barclay, copying it fairly early this summer of the year, and there's a lot of scrambling going on to try and protect the towns and infrastructure around there. Or was this window of opportunity over winter to prepare for a summer season getting shorter? Is it, um, can, you know, is it getting harder to do things such as the um, preparation burn-offs, uh, less time to do things like the, the um, clearing of fire breaks? Yeah, possibly. I think, you know, a bigger issue that I see across more of Central Australia is just a lack of preparedness generally. So once again, if we look at uh, the far northern savannas, the top end, particularly Arnhem Land, for example, they spent um, three or four hard months earlier in the year post-monsoon and have put in an amazing network of breaks using uh, on-ground and helicopter work. The scale of what needs to be achieved further south through our desert country is just just massive. So I think it's too easy just to say that things are getting um, shorter and harder when we're not putting in the initial work in the first place. So if you look at what, for example, some of the Indigenous ranger groups are doing at the moment, you know, being led by in collaboration with a really excellent sort of coordinating body, the Indigenous Desert Alliance, where they're really working hard and to make sure they get fire back in some of these uh, these larger desert landscapes. If we compare, if we compare that Barclay fire, if we go further west, there's a few big fires now in the Great Sandy Desert, and a few of those will be pulled up by work that's been done earlier in the year by the likes of Indigenous Desert Alliance and collaborating ranger groups. I think there just needs to be more thought done, and particularly, as you say, potentially the seasons is potentially getting shorter, but there is still scope to do much, much more. There's quite a lot of those uh, Indigenous groups burning in the southern area of the Northern Territory and, in fact, in other states, is there not? Um, you, you're saying uh, there's more fire breaks and, and burning in the north of the Northern Territory and preparedness is perhaps less in the south. But just tell us a bit about what actually is happening in the south and some of those Indigenous groups and where they're working. You mentioned the, a couple of the deserts there. Yeah, so particularly in the, the Tanamine, quite a bit of, a lot of work's been done around there and over in, in Australia, uh, Great Sandy Desert there and further south. Yeah, there's been a, been a lot of work done. But the issue is in a lot of those landscapes and, you know, this is, this is the case over much of Australia where fire has been absent for very long periods of time. And I'd also like to add that trying to improve the way that you use fire on country is a never-ending journey as well. And one of the biggest investors, or I think probably the biggest investors in the science of the outcomes of fire management in Northern Australia are Indigenous ranger groups themselves. So they work hand-in-hand -hand with non-Indigenous scientists because they really want to understand what's going on, what the on-ground impact of, of their burning is and how they can continue to refine their work. So there's, it's great. It's like this uh, sort of two-way sort of learning and support of those guys on the ground, the um, traditional knowledge, and then 
um, being able to support um, the scientists to actually make sure they continue to improve and re refine that practice. I guess what this comes back to is that you know, burn-offs are actually a complex process. It's not simply a matter of dropping a match in a spinifex bush and running upwind, that for tens of thousands of years, Indigenous peoples have known what they're doing. They've done this whole network of burns, so they keep some areas fresh, they dole down other areas that might be at risk. And that all relied on a very intensive local knowledge knowing the land, walking the land. It doesn't happen as much nowadays, as you mentioned, you need helicopters. So how do you assess the uh, fuel load of such vast areas of Australia now? What what sort of tools and processes are in place to um, this network? I mean, it, it seems like only a few years ago that we actually finally accepted that um, Aboriginal people knew what they were doing. And it's, it's encouraging to hear that... Uh, that their work is once again having such a dramatic impact, but we've got to upscale it and we've got to do it reasonably quickly. That exactly what you said is so important. Using fire to manage fire is complicated. You need to have that really good understanding of the country that you're operating on and you um, need to understand the season you, you're in. And that's built through um, yeah years and years of experience on the ground. So there's some incredible operators out there. One of the great things we have these days that supports that sort of uh, large landscape scale fire management is access to very regular satellite image feeds of what has burnt. Part of my work at Charles Darwin University is with a web resource called North Australia Fire Information, commonly known as NAFI, which has been operating for 20 years to provide that uh, weekly updated burnt area information as well as active hotspot information. And what's been neat to watch over the last 20 years is how that resource over multiple generations has really become an integral part of the culture of fire management over much of Australia and been integrated in into that sort of traditional land management practice. So watching traditional knowledge, traditional landholders, traditional fire management, leveraging space technology, and then working together to facilitate these outcomes. Yeah, it's, it's really, really quite neat. So, I mean, I've heard a number of times that uh, from Indigenous land managers, the first thing they do this time of year when they wake up, they jump on NAFI and check what's burning and use that as a, a way to guide their, their practice on the ground. Is the presence of alien grass species making that job more difficult? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you're referring to particularly um, in Central Australia and the tropics. Uh, we've got two grasses, which are a problem. So um, around the top end, particularly around Darwin region, we've got gamba grass, which produces fuel loads up to 10 times higher than native grass species around Alice Springs and quite a few other areas of uh, arid Australia, buffalo grass is an issue. It doesn't produce quite the same quantum of massive fuel load as gamba does in the north, but it produces continuous fuel loads which remove native species and allow fire to spread in a new way. So both these pasture grasses are definitely changing the way that fires behave um, across a lot of regional Australia. The, the thing that I was looking at, Rowan, when smoke was billowing up from the houses across the road was uh, the NAFI website and, and how much information I could glean from that. Do you think we're ready for all this in terms of emergency services and that 
almost by default, the fire maps that you your researchers created have become a kind of a go-to tool for people. Are, are we are we ready for these fires in some way? Possibly not in some ways. And I think it goes back to this other quite interesting and sort of broader issue around uh, fire as a land management issue. And that's where NAFI grew up and the space that's operated primarily in, which is supporting fire management as a land management issue, as opposed to an emergency response issue for most of Australia, where you don't get your land management right in terms of controlling fuel loads, then that the result is fire then becomes an emergency response issue. One of the issues that we've had with NAFI is that uh, because our focus is not for emergency response and the majority of the sort of large-scale long-term funding and attention occurs when there's a disaster, when there is an emergency, all of that preparedness work, is, which is a land management issue, is sort of becomes a side issue. I think what we need to start doing again is looking at some of these larger landscapes and how we can make sure that we use a sort of uh, tools like NAFI for all of that preparedness work and reduce the need for it as an emergency application. One of the other tools I was interested in that you have been working on is the fire edge mapping. Can can you tell us a bit about that? I thought it was super interesting and quite clever. So particularly in the tropical savannas of the far north, because a lot of those landscapes get fires every year, we get this incredible high frequency of fire information. So we're able to get some quite nuanced and detailed information about the, the fire regimes of the north. So one research project that I worked on the last few years is looking at where fires have stopped. So pulling out all the individual fire events over the last 20 years, defining the edges, edges of those fires, adding all of the edges of the fires together and essentially producing a map of where fires have, have stopped over the last 20 years. And we were able to get a essentially a stopping frequency measure, so the number of times a fire stopped at certain points in the landscape. And what it was telling us is um, reasonably obvious, which is roads, rivers, fences, cliff lines, wetlands, stop fires. So it was good to see. It wasn't telling us anything which wasn't sort of intuitively reasonably obvious. And, you know, people on country understand the land, they would be sort of um, picking out these points already. What the fire edge map is able to do is show us this on a sort of a national scale. And for people unfamiliar with country, able to use that as a tool to really hone their understanding of fire spread and the areas that uh, they may sort of build off to stop fires. And is that just something that's applicable in the north, Rowan, or is fire edge mapping something that can be or is useful already across Australia to the southeast, say, or southern parts of the Northern Territory and South Australia? The more fires you get, the more robust um, the data set you produce about the features that are likely to stop fires. So um, over the last 20 years, at any one point across northern Australia, we're going to have at least uh, 10 fires. So we, we have that history to get a sense of the probability and the stopping power. As you head further south into the into more arid country, um, which is more of those cyclic fires every five to seven years, you get much few data points to have a, a, a more robust picture. Well, I guess finally, asking you to look into your crystal ball, what's your feeling for the upcoming uh, season and uh, do you think you'll be working a lot of overtime this year? <laughs> 
Uh, yes, well, indeed, my, my colleagues with NAFI have been uh, working hard over the last couple of weeks to support that, um, particularly emergency services, services around that Tennant Creek fire. We, I'm certainly concerned um, going into summer in the southern landscape, particularly around Alice Springs. So I think all eyes will be on um, what, what happens in the sort of southern desert, desert rangelands. I'm much less concerned around the top end. As I said, much of the preparatory work has been done. I'm thinking we should have a fairly average fire season sort of around um, north of Catherine over into Arden Land. It's down to the old Boy Scouts motto, isn't it? Be prepared. A absolutely. Um, but the scale of preparedness required across, um, you know, a continent the size of Australia is, is massive. Every landscape is a different fire story and a different fire need, but we need to engage it engage with it seriously on a continental scale and we need to resource it properly and it's going to become more important going forwards. Well, that's it for time today. Thanks to my colleague, Glenn Morrison, and our special guest, Dr Rohan Fisher, for helping us understand Australia's worsening fire threats and how we're tackling them. You've been listening to Cosmos Country. I look forward to joining you again next time. You've been listening to Cosmos Country, a look at how regional Australia is preparing for and adapting to climate change. Cosmos Country is supported by the Walkley Foundation and Meta. For more information and to listen to the whole series of Cosmos Country podcasts, visit the website, cosmosmagazine.com.